0: Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgi-burlington.org. You've been lied to about, as we all have been, the destiny of humankind and where you go after you die and inclusive of the state of the dead. Because what you see in traditional Christianity is not what's in your Bible. It really isn't. It really isn't. Look at this over here in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I'm going to do what's called proof texting, which isn't always. The best thing to do, but I'm going to try and be as honest as I can with the scriptures, but I'm not going to focus on the context so much as I am on just substantiating my point. You can see the context. Maybe what you want to do is mark down in your notes at later dates. You can go back and reread the context to get the flow of scripture as how this scripture that I'm going to share with you or scriptures that I'm going to share with you fit into the context that I'm pulling them out of. But suffice it to say, I want to only make one point, one point clear. That the apostles and the other writings outside of the Gospel of John that we just read in 11, which Jesus characterizes death like sleep, is also in corroboration with, in agreement with, everybody else in the Bible. That's all I want to really show you here in this particular case. And I want to do that by sharing with you the similar terminology 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul. This is the resurrection chapter. I mentioned that in part 1 in passing. Resurrection chapter because primarily the context of the whole chapter is about the resurrection and the mechanics behind what happens to you or how you go about being converted from flesh and blood to spirit and the assurance of the fact that that is indeed the program. The ultimate conversion is to embody you in this material called spirit. But here in verse 51, look what... The Apostle Paul, how he characterizes death. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. That's what Jesus said. Lazarus sleeps. This is what Paul's saying. Sleep. We shall not all sleep, but instead we shall all be changed. I wanted to show you that. First Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul again, but to a different congregation to a different congregation chapter 4 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 this is the one that describes where Paul's encouraging the Christians in Thessalonica on being encouraged over over the fact that yes they've been losing They've been losing friends out of the congregation. They've been arrested. They've been persecuted. People are, are being taken away. And Paul is saying, look, you've got to stand strong. Stand in the gap. Uh, don't let these things distract you and discourage you from giving up on the faith. Don't let that stuff happen to you. And he says here in verse um, chapter uh, 4, verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep. Says it again, different group, same apostle, but he said that over there to the Corinthian church. Now he's saying it to the Thessalonican church. He says, sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede, would be a better uh, translation there, shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. Again, using that same terminology of which um, Jesus used there in John 11. Let me take you now of the Old Testament, real quick here, to Daniel, chapter 12. And let's see what the prophet Daniel, how he characterizes the resurrection at the end time, of which this prophecy is one of the longest prophecies in the Bible. Chapter 11 and 12 actually are all one big, long Uh, contextual dialogue um, if indeed you uh, read it through. But at any rate, the translators divided this portion into chapter 12, and I want to pick up in verse 1, and at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which stands for the children of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never since there was a nation even the same time. This is talking about the tribulation that would be the same tribulation talked about in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21. That if indeed weren't shortened, you know what would happen. No flesh would be left alive. So, we're at that time of the end. Your people shall be delivered. Every one that shall be found written in the book. Here's the context. Notice this, verse 2. Here we go. And many of them that sleep. Daniel, Old Testament. Many, many hundreds of years before the apostles ever lived. Before Paul was alive. he wasn't even a twinkle in his father's eye yet. <laughs> he, Daniel, says and characterizes again this state of the dead as sleep. Sleep. That's where they are. They're sleeping. Jesus characterized it. And he def- definitively, clearly was talking about death. So much so that the disciples were incredulous over the fact that he would risk his life to go wake Lazarus from a sleep, of which he, Jesus, was meaning he was dead. The disciples were still under the oppression. He was just sleeping. So we get this relationship, and if we're thinking it through and connecting with it, we're beginning to understand clearly what the state of the dead are. And here, Daniel chapter 12 states that very clearly. Over here, Genesis, let's go way back into the Torah, first book by Moses, writing here in verse 19. Just jumping into the context here. In the sweat of your face shall you eat bread till you return unto the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you shall return. Not so much an indication of the term sleep, but certainly an indication of the fact that there is a certain mortality associated with you. I mean, when somebody compares you to dirt and dust, basically calling you a dirt ball, you know, that, that kind of says it all. You're pretty mortal. It's, that, that's kind of a connection to mortality because uh, certainly dirt is not necessarily considered uh, very immortal. Over here in the book of Ecclesiastes, Let's go over there for a moment, the book of Ecclesiastes. And in verse or chapter, chapter 3, real quickly here, chapter 3. I just want to kind of lay some groundwork here, brethren, and we're going to come back to Ecclesiastes 3 a little bit later because I'm going to cut myself off short of something, and then I'm going to come back to it because I don't want to digress into it just yet. Uh, but in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 18, breaking into the context, we read this. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, That God might manifest them, that they might see that they themselves are animals. They're beasts. They're just beasts in in the physical sense. In the physical sense. Verse 19 now. For that which befalls the sons of men befalls beasts. Every one thing befalls them as one befalls. uh, Let's see. Even one thing befalls them as the one dies, so dies the other. Yea, they have all one breath, we're only one breath away from death as they say, so that a man has no preeminence, there's no superiority here of you over a dog or you over a cat. I mean, if you put a bag over a cat's head or put a bag over your head, the same result occurs. You die. It's just the way it is. It's no derogatory uh, meaning behind that other than to illustrate a point that in that respect there's no superiority that we have over any other air-breathing, air-breathing creature That walks the earth and depends on oxygen. Here it goes in verse 20. All go unto one place. All are of the dust. All turn to dust again. That's what we read in Genesis. Dust you are. Dust you shall return. Here again we've got continuity. We've got consistency. The writer here of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon. uh, Again, also corroborating with Moses that the two of them are on the same page. The two of them are on the same page. They are taking it uh, essentially in the same direction to illustrate to us that uh, man is indeed associated to dirt. We're physical. We're made of chemicals. We have water part and parcel to us. We have minerals that are part and parcel to us. We have bone marrow and calcium and magnesium and some of us, if we're not careful, we got too much aluminum in us. <laughs> we got all kinds of things in us that sometimes are not the best things to be part and parcel to our flesh, but nevertheless we are part and parcel to a lot of physical Vitamins and minerals and, and water included. Now, Ecclesiastes, stay in the book, verse, uh, chapter 9 and verse 5. Let's go there now. Chapter 9, verse 5. This is very interesting scriptures, brethren. Oftentimes, there is a disconnect that will be, at best, ignoring these scriptures in your modern traditional Uh, Christian circles, because obviously the conundrum is that these particular scriptures do not support or substantiate the traditional perspective of heaven and hell and the fact that you have an immortal soul. As a matter of fact, this is uh, counterintuitive to that whole kind of thought and thinking. And as a result, oftentimes these scriptures are, are kind of just overlooked or certainly not made an issue of or used as teaching tools or items to illustrate uh, the truth of what they hold. Here in verse 5, though, we can't ignore this. It is part of the scriptures. Chapter 9, verse 5, book of Ecclesiastes. For the living know that they shall die. You and I both know we're going to die. We know that. We're conscious. We know that ultimately our lives are finite. They're not infinite. They're finite. And there, there's going to be a point when we're, something's going to take us out. I talked Uh, My friend Wayne Hendricks quite a bit, and we uh, oftentimes uh, laugh over the telephone because we we, kind of kid with each other as to, well, what's going to take us out? We've talked, you know, something's going to take us out because we're living in a world that is surrounded by all kinds of dangers, and in some cases, we can't avoid it. We can't avoid it. The statistics of me being killed on the highway and I've got to drive six hours from here to go back home are are, uh, horrific, and uh, chances are, you know, there's a good chance I might not make it home. Um, there was one time I remember back in the 60s when they did a statistical study versus being on the front lines in Vietnam or on the highways in the U.S. And the high, you were better off in the front lines of Vietnam, <laughs> statistically. But that's another story. I think I'd still take my chances on the highways of the U.S. <laughs> but uh, at any rate, verse uh, 5, we read, For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Oh, stop. Let's park. Oh, the dead know not anything. What? I thought they are up there in heaven praising God, singing psalms, you know, of the pearly gates and jumping up and down and doing Jewish folk dances and all that stuff, you know. No, it says here, they know nothing. Neither have they any more reward. The memory of them. In due time, will be forgotten, unless, of course, you know you're like Carnegie, and he's got a university in Pittsburgh, uh, Carnegie Mellon University after his name, or you know you've got the Eisenhower Highway, President Dwight Eisenhower. His name is still out and about there, but uh, you know the fact of it is, the principle is, once you're out of sight, usually you're out of mind. You know, verse six, and their love, and their hatred, their envy is now perished, all their problems, all their issues, their jealousies, their loves, uh, all the things that they live for, because as the preacher said in another part of the same book, all is vanity, because you can't take it with you. The only thing you can take, and there is something, by the way, you can take out of this life. Now, you can't take your watches, you can't take your cars, you can't take your bank accounts, you can't take your money, you can't take your wife or your kids. But you know what you do take out? your legacy. Your legacy is your character. That is what is going to come back as the thing you took out of this life. That is your currency. It's important that the legacy of your character gets you to the point where you can make that transition of embodiment from this first atom to the second atom when the time arrives. That's important. That's important. And so here we're told they actually, everything associated with that individual perishes, verse 6, is now perished. Neither have they any more portion for ever in anything that is done under the sun. Once you hit the dirt, pardon the expression, but once you hit the dirt, what you are is what you are. As they would say, it is what it is. It's a done deal. You left then whatever record of you is, <laughs> that's what it is. And therefore, uh, there's nothing left for you anymore to do. There's no epilogue and there's no post-mortem opportunity for you to get back up and say, well, wait a minute, I forgot to dot a T or I forgot to you know, cross a T and dot an I. I wait a minute, I, I get, can't I have a little bit more? You know, like the, the guy with the rich man in Lazarus and the rich man. You know, let me, if I just go back to the, the, my living brothers, I maybe save them. And what, did, what did, uh, was he told? Well, they have the law of Moses. Let them believe that. But at any rate, I move on here. Verse 9, it says, Live joyfully with your wife, whom you love all the days of your life and of your vanity, which he has given you under the sun. All the days of your vanity, for that is the portion in this life and in your labor, which you take under the sun. Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. Wow. That pretty much covers the whole gamut. In the grave where you're going. So, what we've got waiting for us is a black hole. If we go ahead and get buried. I mean, that's what it is. And what we're being told here is is there's nothing going on in there. You're in a respite. You're in pause. You are in a position, a safe spot. God willing, it is a safe spot. It's your place of safety. I could even use that terminology. But you are in a position waiting for the resume button to be pressed, for all intents and purposes, because those are the scriptures that we've been covering from part one through now. And we're still going here in this particular um, case scenario. So what I'm trying to submit to all of you and build some evidence here so that all of you will get this is that there is an element in the state of the dead that can be characterized as sleep. That's what death is. And for all intents and purposes, when you're in that state, you're not dreaming. There's no knowledge. There's no work. There's no device. There's no thoughts. You are at rest. If you were in pain... You're relieved. Adrian mentioned how that individual, perhaps, if they could could die quickly. That may sound a little bit insensitive, but it's not. It's a relief. It's a relief. If, indeed, that is the will of God, then so be it. Let me go quickly. I remember my mother, when she passed, she passed in her sleep watching a cowboy movie on TV. That's how I found her on the couch, sleeping, you know, essentially, uh, watching. The, the television was still on her favorite channel, cowboy channels. I think she was watching The Rifleman or something. You know, some of you may know that old program, but there she was just, you know, sleeping. Matter of fact, I mistook her for sleeping. It wasn't until my wife Margie said, Bill, Bill, and she put her hand on my shoulder. And that's how I found my mom, sleeping. Some would say she was dead. I refuse to say that because, you see, she's not dead. She's just in pause. I'm going to see her again one way or the other. and She'll probably wake up and say, oh, no, I must be in the wrong place. Because I'm there, you know. (laughs) But but (laughs) Some of you are slower than others. (laughs) But the point of it is, the point of it is, I'm going to see her again, and she's okay. I, I know for a fact my mom and my dad were not Christians. I know. And you know what? It gives me great pleasure to know that they're not snap, crackling, and popping in a place called hell with a bunch of demons running around torturing my mom and my dad. And furthermore, how in the world think about it? I said this on TV. Think about it. Just think about this. How could you, as a resurrected being in the kingdom of God, know that your loved one, who didn't make it, is snap, crackling, and popping in a place called hell, in the traditional sense of hell, of which whom you serve a God who has authorized to maintain that place by a fallen demon called Satan the devil to maintain it so that your loved ones can continue to be tortured and tormented? Could you enjoy yourself in the kingdom of God knowing that? I couldn't. I couldn't. I can't even think of that. I can't grasp that of how I could even enjoy myself in the kingdom of God, even if I did believe in heaven. even if I did believe in heaven. But nevertheless, people don't think things through sometimes, and uh, they get a little bit um, besides themselves. But here's the case and the point that I'm trying to make, brethren. When you're in the grave, you are there, your body, that is. Now, with that being said, what I'm submitting to you is that you are mortal, that you cannot get up without Jesus Christ calling your name. Now, can we prove from the Bible that you are indeed mortal. We can. Absolutely. We can prove that you're mortal. And by doing so, you will prove you're not immortal. Because that's the the opposite to it. That's the counterintuitive position uh, to that. Turn with me over here to Romans chapter 6. Notice this. And Paul just states it matter of fact. He states it in passing, talking about another subject. If you weren't sharp and on your game, you might even miss this because he's not even talking about mortality. He just talks about it in passing here. In chapter 6, he's talking here and in, uh, let's just break into uh, verse 9, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dies no more, death has no more domination or dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he lives, he lives unto God likewise. Reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? I read it fast on purpose, but did you catch it? He's talking about something totally different here, but in passing he states, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. You see that? That's not the only place. Go to Romans chapter 8. We're in the book of Romans. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. I love this chapter. This is one of my favorite chapters. I call it the Bible inside the Bible. But uh, here in this particular case, he states here in Romans chapter 8, and I'll break into the context in verse 9. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so, be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ... He is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And Paul's talking very poetically here. He's talking very figuratively. He's adding a lot of metaphor and and a lot of figures of speech to get a point across that we should be acting spiritual. Like we're spirit beings now. That's the way we should be acting, even though we're uh, contained in the flesh. But notice this in verse 11. uh, He states this particular thing here in passing. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwells in you. Did you catch it? Did you catch it? It's there again. He says it in passing. He's talking about a totally different subject. Mortality is not the point that He's really on here. But in passing, He describes you as a mortal human being. Ephesians 5. Let's go to Ephesians 5. He was talking here to the Romans. Let's let's see what he said to the uh, church at Ephesus over here in chapter 5. And in verse, we'll break into the context, uh, verse 12. Let's break here in chapter 5, verse 12. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret, but all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever does make manifest is light. Wherefore, he says, awake you that sleepest, And arise from the dead, and Christ shall give you light. Oh, I mixed this one up. But there's that word again. Sleep. You see that? There's that word again. Sleep. Paul's characterizing the dead with sleep. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go back to Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15. And in verse... 53, and I'll just break into the context here because we have already mentioned this particular scripture on a few occasions in part one. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, and here's the timing, at the last trump, at the last trump, the trumpet shall sound. And we know how many trumpets there are by the book of Revelation. So this would have to be at the seventh trump. Because there are seven trumpets only listed. There's not ten, there's not two, there's not fifteen or fifty. There's only seven listed, and we're told here at the last trump, and we're told in Revelation at the seventh trump is when the kingdoms of this world become our fathers and Christ's, and that's when he begins to launch from heaven. And he says here, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised uh, incorruptible, and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on. And this is an important word here. This word put on is enduo. It's a Greek word translated put on, but it definitively means that if I took my jacket off, if I took this jacket off, it means that I do not have it on. I'm going to put it over here. Now, my jacket is off. Do I have a jacket on? I don't have a jacket on. Figuratively speaking, I don't have a soul in me until I enduo my soul or my immortality. I have to put it on from an external source. And duo, It comes on to you from an external source. What does that tell you? It tells you you don't have it in you. Because if you had it in you, you wouldn't need it to come from an external source to be put on and clothe you. You don't have it. You're mortal. You're mortal. Your Bible over and over and over characterizes you as mortal. And the fact of it is, immortality is the reward. That's what the reward is. If you were already immortal, Christ isn't giving you then anything you don't already have, you see. When in fact, because you don't have it and you need Christ in order to get it, that is what makes this all so special. That's what makes all of this so important, that you do repent of your sins, that you do accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, and that you do... Get baptized, because there's no way, as already pointed out uh, in this particular case, to uh, get out of this place alive. So what we're doing here is we're building evidence that appears, if you haven't already got the gist of this, to contradict this traditional view of dying and going to heaven, because the Bible is very clear when it starts using terminology, and I could give you far more scriptures with this word mortality in it. All you've got to do, by the way, is if you get a concordance, get a Strong's or a Young's analytical concordance, look up the word uh, mortal and find all the scriptures in your Bible that use the word mortal and just go go through a Bible study reading the words and how they associate the word mortal with you as a human being. Uh, Sometimes it always won't be necessarily in that context, but uh, certainly uh, it does uh, do you well to uh, take time to do that. So, going back to Genesis for a moment, I want to establish what man then is. Because this goes to the fact that you are mortal. And once again, why people ignore this, because it's nothing really complicated about this. As a matter of fact, it's rather easy to deduct uh, if you just take the time to study it. Uh, you'll find that there's without question the understanding that you are indeed limited of and by yourself and without God's involvement in your life. This is all there is. This is all there is. You need God in your life to get beyond this. The ultimate, again, brethren, friends, let me remind you, the ultimate the ultimate conversion, the ultimate spot God wants you to be in, the ultimate condition, the status that he wants you to have is to get out of these substandard images, these substandard, uh, less-than-superior modes of the flesh and blood, and into the ultimate obtaining of that spirit body, which is immortal, so that you can share his dimension with him, because this dimension is destined to disappear, ultimately, with the new heaven and the new earth. But that's another story. Here in uh, Genesis chapter 2, And in verse 7, we read this, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. There's that terminology again. He formed man of the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Man became a living, immortal soul. No, that's right, Ray. No, but that's what people read into it. Man became a living, immortal soul. They see that word soul there. And right away, because of the Hellenistic influences, because of the pagan influences, that you, as I said, you can make a case all the way back to Babylon, the influences of Egypt and the Greeks and all of the things that have been adopted by the Hellenists through the Jewish venue. And then, of course, later on by the Catholic Church, which adopted it and then portrayed and continued to promote it down through the Protestant movement. The fact of it was these teachings, concepts, and understandings of this immortality of the soul became part and parcel to the ingredients that made up the definition of what we know today as a traditional Christian movement. And that's it kind of in a nutshell. I know I went through that a little fast, but really it's nothing that you can't study on your own. As I've often said, I can say it now, Google it, <laughs> but it's nothing that is hard to find uh, that information on so here what you have is actually a word you need to get a, a concordance uh, you need to get a little familiar with at least fundamentally anyway with some of the old hebrew and perhaps even some of the greek if need be but if you will look up the word soul if you work look up the word soul here you'll find that it comes from a hebrew word nephesh. and all it means all it means is air breathing creature I'm an air-breathing creature. And if you go over, for the sake of time, I'll just reference it here. Genesis, I think it is verse 17 of the same chapter. Verse 17 of the same chapter. You'll see Adam is naming all the animals. He's naming all the animals there in verse 17. I will reference it here just for the sake of uh, clarity. And um, he says here in this particular case, I'm sorry, it's verse 19. Verse 19. Uh, good thing I'm referencing it here. <laughs> Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. This is chapter 2, verse 19. Verse nineteen, uh, And he says, Every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called, every living nephesh. But it's translated in your Bible what? Creature. So you could take that word creature, put it over in verse 7. And you'd have, and man became a living creature. It's that easy from that standpoint. And, and in this particular case, you have uh, some clarity here that adds to them the reason why such scriptures as pointed out. And let's turn now to Psalms chapter 6. Look at this. Psalms chapter 6. You wonder, well, how can this make sense if I believe I have an immortal soul? Because if I have an immortal soul, then where am I? What am I doing? Because this certainly doesn't promote the fact that I've got an immortal soul. Well, the fact that it is the Bible doesn't promote the fact that you've got an immortal soul. And you just read it in your Bible that the word nephesh means nothing more than air-breathing or living creature. And it's also associated to animals like dogs and cats and all the things that Adam was naming in verse 19 there of chapter 2. And man is of the equivalent. We read that in Ecclesiastes, that we have no preeminence over the beast. Here in Psalms 6 and in verse 3, we read, My soul is also sore vexed, but you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord. Deliver my soul. But what this is is nephesh again. Deliver my creature, my body, my physical being here, my, my, my myself. Oh, save me for, uh, for thy mercy's sake. For in death, there is no remembrance of you. In death, I don't have any remembrance of you, God. So where's this praising of God in heaven? Because when I'm dead, I'm being told by the psalmist, King David, there is no remembrance of God in death. Why? Because I'm not active. I'm unplugged. I'm resting. I'm unconscious. I'm sleeping. Remember? Jesus said, it's like sleep. And this is very very basic, very simple. The simplicity in Christ is almost overwhelmingly simple. (laughs) I mean, it it is, you know, when you say the simplicity of Christ, and it seems man has complicated because of intellectual vanity. That's what it boils down to. We think we're so smart that sometimes we're just too, too smart for our own britches. Because that's what happens. We complicate things. There is nothing complicated about this. There is continuity from Genesis to Revelation. There is a continuum of the story. Remember I mentioned the gospel has many aspects, many facets. It's the gospel of the kingdom. It's the gospel of Christ crucified. But it's also the gospel of embodiment. From one embodiment form to another embodiment form. From becoming a creature of human nature consumed with self and narcissism to one who is selfless and is all-powerful and almighty and has no limitations due to the physical world's conditions. You can blast through walls, travel at the speed of thought. As I said, eat because you want to, not because you need to. Sleep because maybe you want to and not because you need to. But when you're a spirit being, brethren, there is no limitation, physically speaking, on you. And Jesus showed us those things. Gave us a little keyhole peek. In John chapter 20 and 21, a little bit, you know, coming through the door and the doors are locked and all that stuff. But that's another story. But the point of it is when you are embodied in a different body, you will have a whole different dynamic to the capabilities of what you're able to do. Here in verse 17, look at this one Psalms 115, Psalms 115, verse 17 The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. Wow. The dead do not praise the Lord. That's what your Bible says. Chapter 40, 146, just a few more chapters. Just Let's go down uh, Psalms here. Psalmist again, King David, writing consistently uh, the continuum that he carries through this particular book and in these songs that he composed. In chapter 146 and in verse 4, we read, his breath Goes forth, he returns to his earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. Is that consistent with what Jesus said about sleep? Of course it is. Of course it is. It's very consistent. There's no contradiction here. It works like hand in glove. It's like a transmission gearing. One builds off the other to give you this big picture. This picture about Physically speaking, you and I, you and I are not preeminent over beasts. But, brethren, it would be remiss of me not to share this with you. Let me digress real quickly for the sake of time. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I do want to bring this to your minds because it is an important distinction to make with respect to the spirit in man because you are different. I am different. You are not like your dog. You are not like your cat. Physically speaking, as an air-breathing creature, yeah, we'll give the dog, we'll give the cat that much. (laughs) But we are unlike any dog or cat for sure. And in chapter 7, in the book of Job, I want to... Uh, share this with you over here because this is important that I introduce to you this word so that you don't get confused in these other scriptures I'm going to share with you here in a moment. Verse 11 chapter 7 Here we, is stated here by Job. Therefore I will not refrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Now, let me rewind and add a little bit of Hebrew to this. Therefore, I will not refrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my ruach. Of my ruach. I will complain in the bitterness of my nephish. There's a distinction here. The ruach being essentially the uh, The rational being, the thought process, the consciousness that's associated with you and who you are. Now, don't ask me how to explain what that is. We've heard that it's called the id (laughs) in philosophy circles. We've heard that it's been likened to a cassette tape. Uh, In modern times, perhaps we could liken it to maybe a disc but here's the point, brethren, that you need to realize as we go to these other scriptures here in a moment. Whatever this recorded device, this data, this, this database that defines who you are, keep this in mind. There is nothing in your Bible that it gives the impression or notion that of and by itself disembodied can it live or have consciousness disembodied it is as useful as a old tape or an old disc. You don't know if it's music, you don't know if it's a D- you don't even know if it's a DVD or a CD because they all look the same unless it's marked of course and labeled. But the bottom line that I want you to understand and recognize is your consciousness. What defines you? Whatever it is, and it's hard to even think about speculating uh, and associating something physical to it, but apparently it is something in the realm of God that affords God the ability to keep record of, that allows Him to be able to recall upon the timing to reinsert back, into whatever embodiment, because that's what we've been talking about, affords you to be whom you are in that embodiment of whatever it may be. Follow me through this. Over here in Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 3 again. Let's go back there for a moment because I cut myself off purposely just so I could go back here and spend a little time on this. We read before 18 through 20 all go unto one place all are the dust this is verse 20 now ecclesiastes 3 verse 20 all go unto one place all are of the dust all turn into dust again verse 21 here the writer says exactly paraphrase what i just said or i paraphrase what he's saying but the bottom line is it's the same thing that i just explained to you who knows the ruach who knows where your conscious being goes your id, your, your identity, who you are, of the man that goes upward and the spirit of the beast that goes downward to the earth. Wherefore, I perceive that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion for who shall bring him to see what shall be after. And the context here is futility. I mean, the writer is, is trying to draw an element of futility. But at the bottom line, at the end of the day, over here at the end of this book in chapter 12, he kind of brings it together. And he states this, and in verse um, 7, we'll just break into the context for time. Verse 7, chapter 12, book of Ecclesiastes. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit, the Ruach, shall return unto God who gave it. Oh, okay, there you go, Bill. There it is. See, you've been basically kind of misconstruing things. Well, now, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Just because this spirit goes back to God doesn't dismiss all the other scriptures that we mentioned that still portray that whatever this spirit is that goes back to God to be dysfunctional, still unplugged. We read scriptures, brethren, that said there's no praise of God in the grave. We read scriptures in the Bible that stated the fact that there is no work, there's no device, there's no knowledge in the grave. So whatever this is that is recorded of you to be retained by God for later embodiment into whatever he chooses to go in, deeper into this you will see that there are different resurrections. I'm not going to digress into that right now, but the bottom line is that your recorded personality, the character of you, your legacy, what you are, the imprint, the database of you as whom you have become at the end of your life, is indeed protected, retained, and filed by God. And he has a good hold on my mom. He's got a good hold on my dad. He's got a good hold on your loved ones. And at some point, there's going to be a resuming event that is going to Create a resurrection or cause a resurrection of which they will be embodied again. Because you see, just because you're reading these scriptures cannot dismiss or discount all the ones that we've been talking about, for part one and part two here. You've got to put them all together and see how they all fit uh, into the scheme of uh, all of this. Matthew 10. Notice this in the New Testament. Go with me here real quickly along the same theme. Matthew 10. And in verse 28, here we have, and I'm going to introduce to you now the Greek version of what we've been talking about regarding Ruach and Nefesh in the Hebrew. We have now Hebrews 10, verse 28, and the fear not them, Jesus talking here, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body. Aha, there it is, immortal soul. No. Same thing. It's just another Greek word, suke. soukai, And in this particular case, uh, again, it's likened unto the Ruach. It's likened unto, but it's in the Greek, your rationale, your being, your, your consciousness, your, your overall uh, being of rationale and thinking of who you are, your thoughts, your processes, the, the identities of, of uh, who and what you are. It's very important, brethren, that we understand that even though some of these things in the English don't translate real clearly to, uh, to us in the Greek, they do add a bit of clarity once you get into that Greek. That's why I encourage everybody to, to do the best they can to maybe get a, a concordance of sorts so that you can do some fundamental study uh, on some of these uh, words that would put you and help you to uh, see some of these things. Okay, so death is like sleep. Our consciousness is kept by God or our identity is kept by God. There's no activity when you're dead. We've read a lot of scriptures about that. I could, I could continue to read more scriptures about no activity being uh, associated with the dead, but I won't do that because I think the point is well made. Uh, certainly, you guys uh, can, can look those up. But we resume, as we've been telling all along here, we resume at a later time. And as was pointed out in uh, part one, the indication is is that it happens At the return of Christ. We also portrayed, remember Acts 2? Remember Acts 2 about David? And how he's still in the grave? And that his sepulcher is still with us? He has not, it even said, he has not ascended to heaven. Okay, so with all this background, now we're ready for three scriptures that are really difficult scriptures. Because I've kind of left these to the end. But I wanted to, again, give you all this platform background to build this case of evidence so that now let me introduce to you these three rather difficult scriptures. Job chapter 14. And hopefully you'll begin to understand this a little bit with additional clarity. Job chapter 14 and in verse So man lies down, rises not, till the heavens be no more. Then uh, they shall not awake, nor be raised out of their, here's that word again, sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would keep me secret until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man die, and here's the question that rattles down through the halls of history, if a man dies, shall he live again? Shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait until my change come. Implication, there's a time coming. And in the grave, you'll be waiting. Job 19, look at this. Verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at a later day upon the earth. And he is, Zechariah 14, he's going to land and he is going to stand on the earth at a later time. I hope these scriptures are coming clear to you now. Verse 26, here's a hard scripture. Notice, and though my skin, worms destroy this body, yet, and if you look in your margin, uh, you should have a different type of syntax that is also optional, like in my Bible. It says, and though my skin, worms destroy this body, yet apart from my flesh, I shall see God. If in the middle of your margin, it should say, After I shall awake, though this body be destroyed, yet out of my flesh shall I see God. Hard scriptures. Here's another one. Hebrews chapter 11. This is a big one, brethren, because this corrals, this collects all of the heavy hitters, or at least not all, well, not all, but many of the heavy hitters of the Old Testament. Men of faith, men who have died with good report, men who you would think, as David we would think, is in heaven because he's a man after God's own heart. By far, you would think these guys are in heaven. Without a doubt, you would think these guys qualified and that as we speak, are up in heaven praising God and doing whatever they're doing in heaven. He says here in verse 1, Now uh, faith, and he defines faith as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, by the faith, the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen... We're not made of the things which are seen. In other words, the Creator made what we see. The things that we see are not made by what is seen. It's something outside of our world that has made our world. Now, notice. By faith, Abel offered unto God an excellent sacrifice. Enoch was translated that he should not see death. Noah Abraham, Sarah, all of these. They're they're listed right here in this hall of faith, as they would say. And in verse 13 states this. These all died in faith. Read it. Not having received the promise. They have not received the promise yet. Then he proceeds to tell talk about and characterize them as men like pilgrims looking for another land, traveling. Remember we we talked about our citizenship is in heaven. Our vision for life is not of this world. Our vision of life is focused and geared, and designed, and tailored for the kingdom of God. Everything we think, say, and do should be in that focus, should be in that context, because our citizenship is not in Canada, not in the U.S., not in the Ukraine. It's not in Poland. It's not in Sweden. It is in the kingdom of heaven. That's where our citizenship is. And because it is in heaven, we ourselves are like pilgrims walking through time looking for another tabernacle. You hear a lot of this, the Feast of Tabernacles. Because we live in this tabernacle, the tabernacle of the first Adam, but aspiring to the other tabernacle of the second Adam, that of the spiritual embodiment. And here he goes on then, after he goes through the little bit of that, verses 14 through 16, he goes back and launches in Abraham, Jacob and Joseph, Moses, and he proceeds to list Rahab the harlot and Samson, and Barak and David and the prophets and how they were sawn asunder and were lived in caves. And on and on he goes. In verse 39, he wraps it all up and he says, all having obtained a good report, they're in. They've got their names checkmarked. They've obtained a good report. They're okay. If it was St. Peter, say, okay, you guys are in. You're in. You're in. You're in. But look at They have not Having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us that they, without us or apart from us, should not be yet made complete. That is the syntax of the Greek. And what that means is Christ is doing it all at once. He's going to reward us all at once. You're coming up with Moses. You're coming up with Abraham. Nobody is ahead of anybody in that regard. If you're going to be in the first resurrection, you're coming up with the rest of them down through history because God has made it in an arranged fashion because he's organized, he's orderly, he has a methodology, he's got a schedule, and he's on a countdown from heaven. And he's waiting. He's at the right hand of the Father, probably sometimes standing up saying, hey, is it ready to go now? Ready to go? I'm ready. I'm ready. And sit down, son, sit down, relax, you know. Because he's, he's ready to go. He's ready to go anytime. And when he goes, he knows he's going to be reunited with those guys that he loved. Moses, he had a face-to-face relationship with Moses. You don't think Jesus Christ misses Moses? Of course he does. He's got feelings. He spent a lot of time with Moses, a lot of years. Over, what, 120 years or so with Moses. You think he doesn't miss Noah? Of course he misses Noah. We don't think about these things. But our Lord and Savior has feelings for these people. He's got feelings for you. He's anxious to be reunited like you're anxious to be reunited with your loved ones. He's anxious to be reunited with his team, that he's going to build a whole new administration around to share in the efforts and in the endeavors of reinstituting the kingdom of God on earth from Jerusalem as the capital of the world. Brethren, that is an awesome destiny. And that's what you're reading here. And that's why I saved the best one for last. John 3.13. John 3.13. How often I've said on a Monday night football game at the Cleveland Browns Stadium, I'd like to have a banner to put over the, over the, over the uh, railing, you know, instead of John 3.16. I I'd put John 3.13 over the railing. And everybody would say, what is John 3.13? Because everybody puts John 3.16 over the railings at these Monday night football games or the Super Bowls or whatever, but in John 3:13, and we were over there when we were reading the story about Nicodemus and uh, Jesus. And let me just pick up the uh, the uh, context here in verse nine, where Nicodemus was incredulous over the fact of being told that. He's got to be born of spirit. And after Jesus mentions all of this from verses 5 through 8, Nicodemus incredulously states this. He goes, answers and he says unto him, how can these things be? And then Jesus comes back and he nudges him a little bit. And he says, wait, aren't you a master of Israel? And know not these things. Now watch. Here he goes again. Truly, truly, barely, barely. he's 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 focused down now. He's bearing down on Nicodemus. He says, truly, I say unto you, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and you receive not our witness. He's talking Jew to Jew here. He's talking rabbi to rabbi. He's talking eyeball to eyeball because he knows who Nicodemus is. And Nicodemus has enough respect to call him rabbi, that you are a man of God. That You could not do all these things if you were not a man from God. And so Jesus is focused on him. He's going to bring him to a new truth. This guy is ensconced. He's embedded. He's underscored by the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. That's what he knows. He came that night. night. Tell me about the life after death. What do you think? Tell me. Tell me. Because I can't get it out of the Old Testament. I want clarity. Give it to me. And now Jesus is going to lay it on. Look at This is a dynamic statement, brethren. People underestimate this statement because when Jesus said this, when Jesus said this, he was saying something more than what he just said. Or let me say it this way. Nicodemus heard more when Jesus said this. He heard more. Because when Jesus said what he's about to say, I'll share with you what certainly Nicodemus, being who he was heard Jesus say because when Jesus said this that verily I say unto you we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and yet we receive not the witness if i have told you earthly things and you believe me not how shall you believe if i tell you of heavenly things question mark to nicodemus nicodemus i don't know if he's sitting there like a deer in the headlights but he's listening, and Jesus then lays it on him. Nobody has gone to heaven. Not one person has gone to heaven. And do you know what Nicodemus heard? you know what Nicodemus heard? That was a slap in the face because what it told Nicodemus? Moses was not in heaven. Whoa! No. What? Noah was not in heaven. Nicodemus was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As I said, he was no knucklehead. He knew exactly what Jesus was saying. This was a major statement, brethren. And I submit to you, saying and sharing that statement with any comparable evangelical minister or Baptist minister or Catholic priest, to ignore that statement is the tantamount of of what you could say ignorance and obfuscation and just not wanting to accept what the Bible says because it cuts across their traditional doctrinal beliefs. This is major. That's why I say I'd like to put it over the banner on a Monday night football game at the Cleveland Browns Stadium. You know, Monday night football. John three thirteen. No man's going to heaven. What? You know, because that is a real, uh, a real revelation that Jesus was stating here, and Jesus. Our our Lord was so courageous. If you read down through here, He didn't stop there. He kept pushing Nicodemus. And look where He ends up. He goes then down into John 16 And he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, that men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil, for everyone that does evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. And I submit to you, brethren, this got Nicodemus' attention, because he, Nicodemus, when he heard those words and what Jesus was implying, that he was the Son of God, guess who was there after they took the body off the staros, the stake. To confirm the fact that he was indeed dead. Joseph of Arimathea. And who was the other guy? Nicodemus. Nicodemus was in the front row seat. He was in the box seat. Wanting, and I'm sure, making sure, poking him. Is he dead? Because he said a lot of things. And I want to make sure. And guess what? Nicodemus was there. Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Joseph of Arimathea, those two. And, of course, the fact that what all of this background has to say certainly does give credence to the fact that Jesus was giving him some real food for thought and some real, what you could say, sobering uh, considerations. So, with all that being said, brethren, as I close this up, I want to turn your attention now over here to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. Sorry I'm going a little long here, but I, I, I wanted to share all this with you because I think this is so important to get a lot of this background information uh, so that you can have a, a better understanding of the concepts that are in your Bible with regard to the state of the dead and uh, the real promise of the Christian Uh, and as it is really uh, so contrarian to uh, the traditional beliefs. Here in verse 4, the prophet states this, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son of Man uh, is mine. The soul that sins, the soul that sins shall die. And he says it again, same chapter, and in verse 20, A soul that sins shall die. That word soul translated again from the Hebrew, nephesh. Nephesh. The air-breathing creature, that being will die. And as a result, we know and understand that Romans 6, verse 23, the promise of the wages of sin is indeed um, death. Romans uh, 6 and in verse 23. So with all this being said, what I've tried to do is explain a couple of things here, and I just kind of want to summarize it real quick, that man's mortal. The promise of immortality is the reward that Jesus is the trigger to afford those who qualify to become immortal, to begin the change. We didn't go there, but you can read it in First Corinthians chapter 15. As a matter of fact, we'll go there real quick as we close this up. First Corinthians chapter 15, and in, um, because this, this really illustrates something here. Every man, verse 23, in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. And the Apostle Paul builds this case in that whole chapter, chapter 15, that illustrates the fact that Christ is without a doubt, he is without a doubt the trigger that is going to afford the change that conversion process that is going to metabolically change your material from what you were when you hit the dirt or what you are while you're alive, if you should just so be alive at his return, and to be changed then from this flesh and blood mode, this image of the first Adam into the second phase, the second Adam, the spiritual Adam. That's an important element. It's an important aspect of the gospel. It is the truth of what God is doing. And so when I said at the outset in part one, what God is doing is he's reproducing himself. He really is reproducing himself. He's reproducing himself in the sense to the extent that he's literally changing us into the same material he is so that we can share in his dimension of time and space, which is not time and space. I mean, we're in time and space. He's not. He's in eternity. He's living in eternity as an immortal. That is really our destiny, friends and brethren. Uh, it's it's such a vision. It's, it's something that I hope all of you can capture. It's so much more exciting, so far more uh, tantalizing uh, uh, and ex- exciting from the standpoint of the future that we have and the fact of being part and parcel to Elohim, the family, the familial environment of being family and loved by a God being who wants to share time and space with all of us. It's an amazing, amazing future that we all have. And hopefully God will give us the strength and the courage and the patience to deal with ourselves and to go through the tests and the trials as he begins to hammer out that character that he wants us to aspire to and accomplish in this life so that we might be able to share in the change of our material, of flesh and blood into spirit, and be able to then help him and contribute in whatever way we can to reinstitute the government of God on earth. And that's only temporary. That only lasts a thousand years. You can read that in uh, their Revelation chapter 20, verses roughly one through about four. They call it the millennium, the thousand years. But more excitingly, attached to that, that that's just that, that's a warm-up. That, that's a preamble. Where the real coup d'etat is, is in the opening of the new heaven and the new earth and the Father coming to planet earth to make his abode here with humankind. And, of course, appears to perhaps even indicate that planet earth will become the center of the whole universe. That is an exciting destiny, a tremendous vision to grasp onto and to capture, and hopefully in your heart of hearts motivate you to live, live for God.